0: This podcast episode was recorded live at the 2022 ASCO Annual Meeting in Chicago by Oncology Data Advisor and ConveyMed. Hi, welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. I'm here with Dr. London from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and in Boston Children's Hospital. She is presenting her research here at the ASCO 2022 Annual Meeting. Dr. London, can you please tell us a bit about your research?
1: Yes, I'd be happy to. Thank you very much for inviting me to come in and talk to you today. I am an associate professor of pediatrics in Harvard Medical School, and I began working in children's cancer research in 1998. I'm a biostatistician by training, and my independent research has been in risk factors for neuroblastoma and applying them to stratification for treatment intensity. In 2005, I uh, published a paper in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And in this paper, we showed that there's a, a relationship between age and outcome for children with neuroblastoma. As age gradually increases, outcome gradually worsens. And in fact, we used a cutoff of 12 months to discriminate younger patients who have better outcome from older patients with worse outcome. So my research indicated that a higher age cutoff might better serve our clinical purposes. And we identified 19 months as the optimal cutoff. And from a clinical perspective, we decided to use 18 months. In the children's oncology group, we decided to change the age cutoff from 12 months to 18 months and applied it to change the risk group stratification for a group of toddlers. So for children, who are either stage three or four, between the age of 12 and 18 months, whose MCN was not amplified, and stage three had unfavorable INPC and stage four had favorable INPC, these patients were moved from high-risk intensive therapy to uh, intermediate risk, where they receive only two to eight cycles of therapy. And so I designed a retrospective study to determine the effects of this change in cutoff, The cutoff change was applied in 2006, and in the 15 years, we have seen 105 patients who's had a reduction of therapy as a result of the change in the age cutoff and the move from high risk to intermediate risk group. So our objective was to determine if this was the right thing to do. Did the toddlers maintain excellent outcome despite the fact that they had a reduction of therapy? Our research showed that the Kaplan-Meier curves of outcome had a cure plateau of about 88% for patients prior to 2006 as well as after 2006. For overall survival, the cure plateau was about 90%. We also did a comparison taking patients from before 2006, the toddlers, and looking at their outcome compared to other patients who were treated with high-risk therapy. And in fact, this formed the basis for my recommendation to change the outcome. The the toddlers treated with high-risk therapy prior to 2006 had outcome of 90%, whereas the other high-risk patients had outcome less than 40%. Now, after 2006, when we moved these children from high-risk therapy to intermediate-risk therapy, and we compare them to the other intermediate-risk patients, they all have very similar outcome at about 85 to 90%. And so we were very pleased to see that our decision to change the risk stratification had been validated. It was the right thing to do for these children. And as a result, they were likely spared the acute toxicity and late effects known to be associated with high-risk therapy Another point that's more general is that when we make changes to risk stratification, we are, in fact, changing the standard of care for these children. It's just as important to validate this change in standard of care. Uh, Even though it's not a new drug, we're still changing the amount and the intensity of treatment that these children receive, and we have to perform analyses to validate the outcome after the chain was made. It's just as important to do that as it would be in a clinical trial to test a new drug. Another important point is that our high-risk group probably contains other children who can be cured with a lower amount of therapy. And so we need to identify new biomarkers to identify these children who may not require high-risk therapy to achieve long-term survival. And in fact, my future work includes an international study trying to gather data on novel biomarkers to test them within the high-risk group to see if we can identify children who may not require high-risk therapy. I think you said this at the beginning, but what biomarkers currently exist? The biomarkers used in neuroblastoma for risk stratification are age, stage of disease, and now we're using the International Neuroblastoma Risk Group Staging System, INSS. We also make use of MCN, amplified, not amplified, ploidy, diploid or hyperdiploid, International Neuroblastoma Pathology Classification, INPC. That's favorable or unfavorable. In some patients, we use 1P loss of heterozygosity or 1Q loss. And we also sometimes use whether or not a child is symptomatic, compression of the spinal cord would be an example, and the degree of resection of the of the original surgery to determine how much therapy may be required.
0: Oh, wow, well that's really interesting. That that the research that you have done has
1: now changed the standard of care. It's really exciting for me, especially as a biostatistician, as I don't often, I don't ever directly interact with the patients. But I'm I'm pleased to know that that this change has been able to improve the outcome for these children. That's great. Congratulations. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast recorded live at the 2022 ASCO Annual Meeting by Oncology Data Advisor and ConveyMed. For more expert perspectives on the latest in cancer research and treatment, be sure to subscribe to the podcast at ConveyMed.io and OncData.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media for news,
1: exclusive interviews, and more.